Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And then there were two. The final of the World Cup will be Argentina against France. And the Gegen Pod will break down how it happened for the defending champions in the semi final as they defeated Morocco 1 0. We've got former Socceroo Tommy Orr and former Premier League star Michael Bridges on the show today. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Let's get into the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This is the Gegen Pod. It will indeed be Argentina against France in the final. And on the Gegen Pod today, it is Tommy Orr against Michael Bridges. And maybe we'll bring Mark Schwarzer off the bench too. Gentlemen, welcome back to the Gegen Pod. We know our World Cup final straight off the top. Bridgie, how's that left you feeling? It's left me feeling very, very satisfied knowing that the team that knocked England out of the World Cup are going to be in the final. Um and Argentina in the final, obviously, I would love to see Messi lift it. I think he's been absolutely awesome this whole tournament. They've won the Copa America and the little slip up against Saudi Arabia. Everybody was thinking, oh, they've gone 36 games unbeaten. They come to the World Cup. They've lost the first match, but what they have been absolutely sensational from there on in. So I think it's going to be a great final. I'm good for Morocco and their fans. The players have been awesome, but I just feel for the, you know, I think it's the world champions against the Cup of America champions. It's going to be sensational. Agree completely with Bridgie. Um, yeah, you know, you couldn't really have scripted a more of a blockbuster grand final. And, um, you know, obviously the, the two teams that beat Australia at this tournament as well, which reflects well on the Socceroos, both reaching the final. But, yeah, I mean, it's all about Messi, and I agree with Bridgie. I'd love to see him, you know, silence the, the critics as maybe being the best, player, greatest player of all time and go on to win a World Cup. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to the final. Tommy, you definitely anticipated what would happen in the game. France leading in the fifth minute. Uh, game plans changed from that point due to the game state. What did you make of the way the two teams set up and then how that changed after that early goal? Yeah, so obviously France got the early goal, which I thought was um, a bit of a mistake from Morocco, the way the guy um, dived in uh, against Griezmann and it kind of created the opening. But, you know, after the after the goal, which was obviously a fantastic finish from Hernandez as well, but I think Morocco got themselves back into the game and um, that they dominated, to be honest, most of the game in terms of possession and, you know, you know um, they didn't create heaps of clear-cut chances, but they had their moments where they were unlucky in the box. But I think that's that's kind of what let them down was in, in the front third and in the, in the defensive third. Um, France was more clinical in the box, and I think that's um, that's always a sign of a great team. They, they weren't necessarily the better team in general play, but France had the know-how to get the job done. Now, the way the Moroccans defended the French was largely effective. Uh, Bridgie, what tactics do you think Argentina will take from this game as they prepare for the final? The first goal was a mistake. The second goal was a tap-in and and maybe uh, the culmination of being overwhelmed in one phase of play. But for the most part, Morocco did what we expected they would with their very effective defending. Well, it was always going to be, considering they'd only conceded Morocco one goal in the whole tournament. You knew there was going to be, they were, they were going to be defensively um, exceptional. It was going to take a moment of brilliance or a mistake was going to be the, you know, the, the ending to it. 
And like Tommy just said, it, when you dive in, Griezmann spun him absolutely brilliantly. And it was the first time in the tournament I've, I felt like they've they've actually the back line of four or five, whatever they you know they, they, they were versatile. It hadn't been broken that often. They hadn't made mistakes. They, they were happy to put players behind the ball. Dived in, got sucked into the sucker punch, but then you need a little bit of luck. And if you see how many times the ball ricocheted before it felt Hernandez, it's a great finish. But it just seemed that it was going to be, it felt to the French in the perfect way. And I looked at the Argentinian game as well the night before. And I think it was Alvarez's goal where the defender should have cleared it. It bombed in front of him, another bobble in front of him. Sometimes it's all, you know, it's written already in the stars when you need that little bit of luck and it falls your way. And I just think that, you know, the French got very lucky in that circumstance that the way the ball fell to them, but the way they broke the defense down with Griezmann spinning, they, they deserved that. And, um, like Tommy said, it's about being clinical. And the, if you are clinical, uh, you, you know, you, you don't get many opportunities in World Cup games especially in semi-finals, and you've got to take your chances. And the French did, and I, you know what was absolutely brilliant as well? Mbappe's feet. I know you're saying it was a tap-in, but the build-up play, the way he had five players around him, and it was like a little pinball machine. He just went ding, 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 and he got the shot off, and he caught the keeper off guard, and you've got to be there for the rebound. So fair play at them. I thought the French, you know, world champions, getting the job done. Two goals against Morocco have been brilliant. You deserve to be in the final. I thought as well, um, you know, the, the substitutions for France in the second half were really good as well. I thought Touraine, when he came on, he changed the whole dynamics. And obviously, Giroud was quite disappointed to come off. But, you know, Touraine was direct. He was running at the defenders. And I think that, you know, that kind of gave France the ascendancy to go and get that second goal. Because before that, before he came on, they were they were under the pump. And I think that, um, yeah, that Deschamps deserves a lot of credit for the substitutions he made. The thing is, Tommy, the cliche of the plucky underdog, it's so often about how uh, media talks about World Cup teams that aren't from Europe or South America. We're, we're talking about Morocco here. Bridges mentioned, you know, being clinical with your chances, but should we actually have expected better from Morocco, a team that clinically beat Belgium, uh, a team that had looked good in beating Portugal? Should we have expected better from them to convert some of those chances rather than maybe giving them the pat on the head saying, hey, well done for getting this far? Is, is it wrong that maybe of a World Cup semi-finalist we should demand that they actually scored an equaliser with the wealth of opportunities that they created or maybe even pegged that goal back at the end with the mad scramble that got cleared away? Well, I'm sure that's how they, they would be looking at it themselves. I think they, they would wish that they had their time again in a, in a lot of moments. And I think in the second half in particular, there was one or two moments where they hesitated and they didn't get the shot away which cost them, actually. But I think also France deserves a lot of credit. And Lloris obviously made some fantastic saves, um, two in the first half that I can remember. But I think they de- defended very desperately as well. And, um, you know, they, they, they got numbers in the box when they needed to defensively. And even the likes of Griezmann, I remember him in the second half making some clearances, which is not something that you, you, you're used to him doing. But I think that goes to show um, how well they defended and how desperate they were. So I think it was as much um, them defending desperately as it was Morocco maybe squandering some opportunities. I've, I've got to say as well, when you think the the game time in the mannerism of, in which Morocco have gone about this tournament, the work ethic, the, the you know, the, the last few matches, the players were literally falling on their knees and not wanting to go off. You know, CS had the, the hamstring injury that was strapped up. They didn't want to come off. I just felt going into this game that the world champions had gone through and they it's all about recovery and less minutes and and Tommy will tell you that about international football and tournament football it's how quickly you can recover I just felt Morocco they just looked 
as if it was too much for them going into this game against the World Championship. who hadn't covered as much distance as a team. They'd had a longer recovery. They hadn't gone longer in games. Uh, and I just felt that the French had the upper hand for that reason. They, they had more numbers on deck and they were a lot fresher. Well, Morocco had a phenomenal tournament. They beat Belgium, they eliminated Spain, and they beat Portugal. Let's go over to Qatar now and check in with Mark Schwartz. So, Schwartzy, what can nations learn from Morocco's deep run in Qatar? I thought Morocco has been absolutely outstanding um, from the minute they've arrived here. Um, I think the way that they've uh, shown unity, the way that they've performed with heart, um, with lack of fear, They've they've really taken games to to their opponents. They've thoroughly deserved to be um, at the semi final of a World Cup. Um, unfortunately, obviously, they weren't able to take it any further. But they certainly deserve to be where they are um, and to be playing in the playoff for third and fourth. I think uh, once the hurt sort of subsides a little bit from losing uh, against France they'll understand and realize how big an accomplishment it was for Asian football, but also for this group of players, you know, and, and I know they speak, they speak always very, very highly about how they're representing also not only African football, but the Arab nations. Um, and we've noticed that very much on the ground here in, in Qatar, uh, the enormous amount of support that they've received throughout this tournament tonight. For example, there was uh, probably about 80, 85% of the stadium was full of Moroccan fans uh, of all different backgrounds, which was, uh, was, a, was a very, very nice thing to see. Mark Schwartz are there, and I'll put the same question to you two, Tommy and Bridgie. Morocco, I, I mean, their circumstances are certainly unique. They've got so many dual nationals, so many players who were born in, whether it was the Netherlands or France or uh, elsewhere in continental Europe and grew up in different footballing systems, but the pull of the national identity all brought them back to this team. So uh, there are questions over whether it's replicable for other nations to follow as an example, but what can other nations learn from Morocco's deep run? Well, I think for me that this tournament showed that, um, and Morocco was probably the best example of this, but the teams that played with a great fighting spirit were the ones that often got the good results. And that, that kind of sums up Morocco's tournament. We know they've got sprinklings of world-class talent in, you know, Hakimi and Ziyech and these types of players. But um, yeah, I thought that they were kind of the shining example of this tournament where there was so many surprising results of how the teams managed to do it. And Bridgie touched on before the energy that they play with. I think that you know, it, it's kind of shown the rest of the footballing world, not only Morocco, but this this tournament, how the results have unfolded generally, that teams that are well-organised and well-structured are really difficult to play against and you're always, you know, capable of getting a good result. So, I mean, yeah, Morocco, I'm sure they're disappointed after the result today, but I think they've done all of the Arabic world and, you know, Africa, extreme, you know, they've done them amazing service and I think that they've kind of, um, yeah, not put them back on the map, but given them more um, credibility than they probably had beforehand. I've, I've got to say, Tommy, there's a, there's a difference between running round and having the work ethic and being like headless chucks. It's got to be organised. You've just said there, it's structured. That's what it's about. If, you're willing, if, you, if you've got a structured team, whether it's the style of play, like the Barcelona, like your Man Cities, where it's possession-based with a purpose going forward. You know, there's there's triangles all over the park. There's rotations. That takes a lot of time to get that dynamics across to your players. It was a short turnaround. This team was structured and organised Morocco from the back defensively. They had a counter-attacking style of play that they were going to do. And it was all about if they knew they were so structured defensively. Bear in mind, the manager had only been in, I think, 86 days prior 
Uh, it just shows the work ethic with structure um, and some organisation and a buy-in. That is what it is all about. If you believe in that manager's direction and what you're doing, and the you're basically like like Tommy saying, you're flying the flag. Um, for the rest of the world to, you know, they've they've gone on to be the best African team to get the semi-finals ever in history. So that's kudos to them. But it comes, it's it doesn't just happen. You can't just say it's work. I think it it's a, everything as a as a um, collective. Now there's one incident and one player that I wanted to talk about. Sofiane Amrabat, the Fiorentina man for Morocco. The covering tackle on Kylian Mbappe, that'll be one of those highlights that, that gets played in all of the montages for World Loved Cups it. into the future. Not least because it was on Mbappe as well, just just uh, for that. But how impressed, Bridgie, were you with how Morocco contained Mbappe, but also how impressed were you with Amrabat's tournament? He's 26, so he's in the prime of his career. You'd expect nothing left, nothing less from uh, someone of his age. And Fiorentina's not a small club by any means, but uh, certainly a player that's done his stocks no harm. Do you know what it is? It, he showed class because obviously he's changed, had to change position, had a little bit of a to cover for the centre halves. I thought the distance he covered, I think it was the the quarter final game. It seemed like there was three of them on the pitch. He was everywhere. It's not the first tackle he's made this tournament where I've gone. That is almost like Vinnie Jones esque. You know, not scared of getting a yellow card. Just <laughs> Vinnie Jones. <laughs> Vinnie Jones. Just so take a bit of that. You say, you're just, saying, Bridgie, that. Amrabat's going to be grabbing people and putting their heads in the car door and slamming the car door on him in the future. I tell you what, it's probably the only thing he didn't do to Mbappe. It was absolutely brilliant. He did everything else to him. And when I saw Mbappe rolling around, um, the replay was brilliant because he just got absolutely smashed, but fairly smashed. So he was actually one of my players of the tournament. I've got to say, if it wasn't for Messi and what he's done for Argentina with these goals and Mbappe with his goals, obviously, for France... Amrabat has been the the standout performer. Hakimi's been amazing as well from right back. But the the matches you looked that midfield, the way he has basically shielded that defence, outstanding. And he had the capability to play out as well. I, I think he he could be a potential to get a massive massive move this summer after the World Cup performance he's had. Just for anyone that didn't grow up in the nineties, that's a reference to Vinnie Jones's acting career. I'm not saying that Amrabat <laughs> is going to be doing that to people. Um, Tommy, your thoughts on him? Yeah, I mean, that, that tackle that you, you mentioned, I mean, that kind of embodies everything that Morocco's been about this whole tournament. They're putting their bodies on the line at every moment in the game. They're fighting for every inch, and I think that, that tackle kind of summarises that. And on Amrabat, you know, I think I touched on it last week, but I, I played with him in Utrecht about 10 years ago um, when he was coming through, and he was, a, 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 you know, smaller than me when he, when he came through. And if you look at his physical presence now, I mean, how far he's come in the last 10 years is, is unbelievable. And for him to have such a breakout tournament is, is phenomenal. And, you know, you, you look at the likes of Liverpool and Spurs and these kind of clubs that are monitoring him now. And, I mean, for him to get a move like that would be fantastic and be fully deserved. Tommy, what height are you? 170 centimetres. So you're saying he was smaller than you back then. What age was he? Yeah, well, he's probably four, three or four years younger than me. He would have been about 16, I reckon. So he must have grown about a hundred, hundred since then. And, and he's, he's about, about six twenty kilos six on. He's a, he's a yeah. mountain now. <laughs> there you go. That's impressive, yeah. man. Personality-wise, Tommy, was there a big language barrier? Like, was he someone that you got to know or got an understanding of what his character was like, or was that a bit difficult? No, definitely. I, I played with him on the pitch a fair few times as well, and he, um, he was always very combative, like very, such a fierce competitor. And I think that you see that now in, in his style of play. So he hasn't lost that, but. He's um he's always been the guy to kind of wear his heart on his sleeve in, in the games, and he was always the player that ran the most in the, in the matches and these types of things. And um yeah, I think 
his physical output has always been kind of uh, an important part of his game. So I think that's kind of what what he's carried through his whole career. But was he one that you would have you would have pointed uh, to him and said he's the one to watch, or did you not see it coming? No, to be honest, no. Um, and it wasn't that he was. Um, he still was obviously a very talented player, but you know we had technically some phenomenal players, and those ones that maybe that I played with at that time kind of fell by the wayside. But I think it was his competitive nature um, that you know he's so hungry to be successful, and I think that you see that in how he plays as well. It's he's got so much desire, and I think that's kind of what's been what's carried him through to this point. And now you know he's got personality as well. Like he doesn't shy away from receiving the ball in difficult situations or these types of things. He's got, um, yeah, I think that kind of mentality is, is what has been very important for him, and he, he showed it this tournament, yeah, in abundance. Now, let's talk about the winners. France uh, into consecutive finals. Didier Deschamps could become the first person to win three World Cups, one as a player in 1998 and now potentially two as a manager. Before I get your thoughts on him, let's get Mark Schwartz's thoughts on Didier Deschamps. Look, I think uh, Deschamps would rank right up. I mean, I think he's already ranking very, very highly in terms of international management. Um, yes, in Monaco, he had success as well, but I think he's truly remembered for, for what he's accomplished with this France side. Um, and if he were to go and win the World Cup, it's very difficult to dispute that he's not a world-class manager and has to rank up there with being you know, one of the best uh, there is and ever has been. Um, but, you know, obviously, they're still one game away from that. Um I think you'll still be regarded very, very highly if they were not to win it. Um, but winning it will certainly tip it in his favour. Thanks to Mark Schwarzer. Now, uh, Bridgie, how does this team compare to 2018? Because France against Australia and France against Poland, if we'd seen that six times, we'd be talking about them like they're the Harlem Globetrotters and, and the greatest team to grace the field. But we haven't seen that in the last two games. This has been Deschamps France in the last two games. What have you made of him? <laughs> Don't get me started. Um, they, they find a way to win. Like they, you know what it is. I've got. I've got to say they know how to control games um, when they need to. They, they know how to absorb pressure when they need to. Defensively, they can they can absorb and uh, very very clever at slowing the player down. And when you've got the front. The pace of Mbappe, you've got the quality of Griezmann, and you've got the the nous and the experience of being the leading, you know, the top goal scorer in France now taking on Riz, Tally and Giroud, who finds the back of the net. You've always you've got a chance. I just think that um, I, I don't think they would have been as productive if they didn't have Deschamps the manager because I remember going back to the first World Cup when they beat us when obviously the, the result against Australia. I still go back to the documentary footage we saw of that team talk when Deschamps had the kahunas to dig out massive players. He'd give it to Pogba, he'd give it to Mbappe, and he'd give it to somebody else I can't think about their work rate or their lack of work rate, the distribution, the high-intensity runs. And he, he humiliated them in a way that they bought into it rather than isolating them out and making them feel like they'd, you know, like school kids. And I think that man management style has got them over the line. So I think if without Deschamps, they wouldn't, they've got the players. I don't think they would have had the dynamics and the management to get them through it. So I'm, I'm, you know, when you've done it as a player, 
um, in Deschamps. There's a fantastic documentary just about Didier Deschamps. If any of the listeners want to get on board, I can't think what it is, but just check out uh, Deschamps'. It's about his playing career. All the players talk about this guy as a player and how much of an organiser and a great captain and leader he was. And there's no doubt about it why he's become the manager that he has become. And I, I, I'm saying... Forget about the, the French players as individuals. It's a collective and it is about Didier Deschamps' mentor and these boys. Completely agree with Bridgie. I think that, um, you know, they've obviously got so much talent at their disposal that, you know, when you're looking at the top international teams, it becomes a lot about man management. And you look at some of the players they're missing in this tournament and he's still found a way to, to get them to buy into what he's doing to, to set them up to win. And I think um, Bridgie used the word control before and, um, that's the thing that you, you always feel like they're in control, whether def- they're defending, they're attacking. You never, they, they never feel like, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're under threat. You always, exactly. And I think that you also have that feeling a little bit in club football with Real Madrid. You know, sometimes you feel like they're under the pump, but they'll always find a way to win. And it's a little bit the same with this French team. Um, that, I mean, Deschamps, like you said, Bridgie deserves a lot of credit for that because, I mean, a lot, a lot of coaches inherit fantastic, you know, international squads, and they can't find a way to do what he's doing. So he definitely deserves a lot of credit. The uh, the name of that documentary, at least translated, Bridgie, is uh, "The Secrets of a Legend." So thank you very much. That the, is the uh, one. It's a classic. Look for it in in French. Read the subtitles. Okay. Uh, now, on the subject of Deschamps, of course, he's French, uh, and in the World Cup final, Lionel Scaloni is Argentine. They are national coaches from the same country as their national teams. However, uh, there was only one foreign manager to make it out of the group stages in this tournament, and that was South Korea with Paulo Bento from Portugal. What do you make of national team managers who manage their own team, and how do they stack up against foreign coaches? It's particularly timely, Bridgie, given that some of the discussions going on pertaining to your very nation, England. Yes, this is huge at this moment. Obviously, Southgate is... Uh debating um, whether he would like to take it on. He's having a little bit of Gordon leave at the moment to talk about his future. I think the FA would love it if he if he did stay on. I don't think it's their decision to make. I think they're going to leave it up with Gareth Southgate. However, there has been a lot of media speculation. There's a certain Jamie Carragher over here who's fantastic at what he does with the country and the you know the he was a great player. Me and Jamie um Obviously, when we when we see each other, always catch up. We've been the same England under 18s and 21s together. He's a character. However, he's come out with the comment to say that the next English manager must be English. And you'll love this one because Sam Allardyce has actually come out today and also said that he reckons that the next English manager should be English. Now, I think Sam's voting for himself there. Um, he's trying to get himself a gig. And, you know, there's been quite a lot of speculation over this. Do you know what it is? I, I don't care who the next England manager is or what nationality he is, whether it's Gareth Southgate or whether it's Eddie Howe or somebody from a foreign country. The thing that I believe you must be able to do is speak the language. I think that's a huge thing. And I, I remember speaking to um, Graham Arnold about when he had a crack overseas and the other one was obviously Ange Postacoglu had great success at um, in Japan. With Marinos, you've got to find a way to have key words and messages to get across to the players when you don't speak the language. I don't think you can have that at international level. Um, as long as you can speak the the English language, which most managers can now when you do the pro diploma, you need to have a second language to be able to speak. So I, I just think it's rubbish saying that you need to have an English manager in charge. I don't, is somebody, the, the thing with the French, they've got, a, they've got somebody that's won the World Cup as a player, right? England don't have anybody that's won the World Cup as a player anymore. And there's not many can go into that managerial role now. 
So we're looking for this. We, we need to find something. So I'm, I'm, I do hope Southgate stays on. I've got to say that. I really do. Because he's, I think, um, from everybody that I've spoken to over here that has an affiliation with England itself at the setup with youth level, with coaching and some of the players, they really like this guy and they like what he's all about. Yes, he hasn't won, but he's been one of the most successful. But again, some of the comments, I honestly don't care, Teo, whether he, you can't say that the, the manager must be English because I think that's rubbish. When you when you think that Jurgen Klopp's are out, um, Pochettino, you've got Pep Guardiola, please do me a favour. Like it's it's just such a especially in the, the 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 day and age that we are living in, you can't you cannot isolate your nation to be like that. T- to be fair, Bridgie, Bobby Charlton's still with us. He's just eighty five, so I don't think he's going to be getting. <laughs> I didn't the job. say they were all gone. What I said was that they're all very old and incapable of going out to coach a team. Let's not let's not wish them away so so early. Now, uh, Tommy, same question to you. How different do you think the dynamic would have been at the World Cups you went to when you had Pimverbeek for one and Postacoglu for the other? Uh, you know, how important is having uh, a national manager that is from that nation? Yeah, I think I agree with Bridgie. I don't think it should be a rule um, per se because we've we've seen historically how well Pimverbeek and Gus Hitting did in that period with the Socceroos. Um, I think that the big thing is that the coach needs to, to come in and understand the player's mindset, the culture, and be able to kind of tap in and galvanize the squad because getting buy-in, like Bridgie mentioned, that's that's the big challenge for a coach. And if they can do that, then the, there's every chance they'll be successful. And obviously having an appreciation for the culture is, is an advantage. But, you know, the, the top managers in the world that Bridgie just mentioned, you, you would back them to do that with any nation probably. So I think that it, where they're from is is a little bit irrelevant, but it, it in some situations it definitely doesn't hurt. I would like to think that it's what Tommy's just said there. You you need to understand the culture of the nation that you are taking charge of if you are a foreign manager, and that's why I talk about the players that are in the Premier League at the moment with Klopp and Pep Guardiola, Pochettino has been there. They they understand the culture. They know what it is about. So it's an easy transformation for them to speak the language. So I don't know how. People can say it's got to be an English manager. It doesn't. I, w- I wouldn't like to see somebody come from Japan or from America to come and take charge of the English national team that hadn't experienced the English culture or dealt with a football team in England. I would like to think that they've got some notes about about that um, to understand the dynamics of the, the culture and the way that the, the, the players would embrace it. Now, this is potentially semantics, but Walid Regrawi the Moroccan manager, born in France, played his entire professional career in either France or Spain, finished his professional career at the age of 34 in uh, Morocco, and then coached in Morocco, coached in Qatar, and then back to Morocco uh, with Wadad Casablanca, which is where he then ascended to the Morocco national team, having only come in recently. Now, yes, he is Moroccan, but he's French-born. He's played his entire professional career in France, and he, some of his managerial experience has now been in Morocco. I mean, how, how blurred is the line here, Tommy, to say, yes, he's a Moroccan manager. Yes, he's got them to the semi-final. But are we not effectively looking here at a, you know, a dual national coach in some respects? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I, I think that the, it, it goes back to what I said before. You know, you can, where he's from is almost irrelevant. It's that he understands what the players, you know, culturally, how they, how they operate. He knows how to squeeze everything out of them, and I think that you know you can you can dive into 
their roots and where they're from. But I think it comes down to a lot of it to emotional intelligence and these types of things. You know, all the great managers have a high level of emotional intelligence and, um, you know, great man management skills. And I think that he's obviously got that in abundance. And I think there's no kind of better example for in, in his case than Hakim Ziyech because we saw in the in the years leading up to this World Cup, he wasn't even in the squad. He was outcasted. And the way he brought him back in in the tournament that Ziyech went on, is going on to have or he has had in the, in the last few weeks it is phenomenal. And he's obviously achieved amazing buy-in to bring him back from you know to resurrect his international career the way he did and I think that speaks volumes and um yeah uh, for me you know you look at the Australian national team not from a coaching perspective but also the players you know there's players from all over the globe with with multinational kind of backgrounds as well so for me it's all about um achieving buy-in and I think that's what he's done extremely well. Tommy, can you do me a favour, mate? Can you just do a whole Optusport journalism segment on that word or them two words you've used? Which word? Emotional intelligence? Emotional intelligence, because I've got to say, (laughs) there was a lot of coaches, well, I'm not going to say a lot of coaches, there's a few coaches in Australia that I have worked under that need to read and listen to what you've just said there, mate, because it is a massive issue in Australia. I've had similar experiences, to be honest, because... Um, yeah, I think in the UK, there's much more emphasis put on, um, player, you know, keeping the players happy because if you're a professional footballer, you've obviously got to that level for a reason. You're obviously talented and a lot of it's down to man management skills. And I think in Australia, you know, not, not every coach, of course, but there, there, a lot of times it can be a little bit of a, a school teacher mentality where it's a dictatorship when you're not working a, with the players, yeah. it's against the players. It's either a dictatorship or you're trapped like a piece of shit. That's the bottom yeah. line, mate. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, before we get Mark Schwartz's thoughts on foreign coaches, I suppose with how it pertains to Australia, we're, we're a country where everyone is from somewhere um, to an extent. So, Tommy, I mean, is Regragui's example one that Australia can learn from in that respect with regards to dual nationals? Um, I mean... Potentially, but I think that, you know, the, the best kind of candidate for the job, um, you know, if Graham Arnold, for example, was to move on, we saw what a fantastic job he did. I mean, for me, looking at you know, the next Socceroos coach, there probably isn't any reason to, to look overseas at this point in time because um, we've seen how well Australian managers are doing um, all over the world. You've seen Kevin Musket. Uh, I think that we don't have the, the Australian coaches aren't necessarily getting the credit they deserve, but historically so but now they finally kind of are and you know if, if we had to appoint a new manager I don't think there's any need for us to look overseas but there's no reason to to be you know to make a rule where we can only look in Australia because that would just be ignorant because you never know what possibilities can come up and if there's a a, a top level coach that becomes available then of course you have to consider it if he's a foreigner so for me it's there's there's no rules when it comes to this kind of thing. I think it's more just a case-by-case basis and who's going to be the best fit. Well, let's get Mark Schwartz's thoughts now on foreign coaches and how they've fared at this World Cup and how they pertain to national team success. Uh, yeah, I think the, the foreign manager debate is always a really, really interesting one. Look, it all for me, it all comes down to personality. It all comes down to the individual, how much of a commitment they show towards that country, how much they embed themselves within the country, within the culture, within understanding football culture, the people, the mentality, um, and how much 
work they really put into it. Um, it's not just about playing the football, but it's also about understanding the culture and the identity of, of, of their football players of each of the countries. I can understand why, you know, England have been down the foreign manager's route before and they've had limited ex- success. And probably one of the bit- biggest criticism is that lack of understanding of culture and, and the identity of, of players and, 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 the, and the name itself, what it means to represent your country. And I think as a, as a foreign foreigner, it's very, very difficult to know and feel the same way. Um, if you are a local, I think you naturally, you're born into it, you grew up in it and you understand it through and through. So um, there's no surprise also that we see fewer and fewer foreign managers. And when we do, um, they have less success. They tend to have less success than, than the ones from, you know, from their own countries. Um, <clears throat> you know, we saw it again with Australia. Graham Arnold did it. I thought, I've said it before many times since the World Cup has ended for Australia, that uh, he did an incredible job, a remarkable job. And actually, um, I think a lot of people have had to eat their words uh, because of how good he's uh, performed. I certainly have to hold my hand up and say that massively overachieved from my expectations and being around the squad, having seen how Graham Arnold has worked and how uh, the players have responded and how much respect they have for the manager. Um, it's not a fluke. It's something that he's worked incredibly hard to do and um, he has to receive an enormous amount of credit for it. And I ideally would love to see another Australian manager um, take the soccer route further if it's not going to be Graham Arnold. Um, but I don't think it has to be. But again, I'll go back to it has to be the right appointment. It has to be somebody that is prepared to live and breathe and understand the football culture, the Australian mentality. And hey, Mark, while I've got you, what have you made of Randall Kolomuani at this tournament? The second goal scorer came in for Nkunku at the last minute, and he's been playing well in the Bundesliga for Eintracht Frankfurt, which inevitably means that you will have seen, I think, far more of him than anyone else in the pod today. So what have you made of this young French striker? Yeah, look, I think uh, Kolomuani's had a, had a fantastic tournament. And, and look, often we see, or sometimes we see it, a player that was not even not even in the squad or was a fringe player gets an opportunity through someone else's um, unfortunate incident of being out injured and uh, he's taking his chances. I mean, tonight, look, he, he worked incredibly hard. He's quick. And that's what we see from a lot of the French players. Very quick, very athletic. And uh, he was in the right place at the right time. And, and uh, he did it all night. He bombed up and down the sideline and uh, he worked very, very hard, as we've seen with the whole French side. They, they work incredibly hard. And uh, he's done very, very well this season for Eintracht Frankfurt so far. And look, I don't think it's a given he'll move on from Eintracht straight away, but he'll certainly be on the radar of some really big clubs. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him, maybe not in January, but you know, in the not too distant future, be moving on to another club. Mark Schwartz's thoughts there on Randall Kolo Moani. Don't go anywhere. The Gagan Pod will continue after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Welcome back to the Gegen Pod. We've got Tommy Orr, former Socceroo, and Michael Bridges, former Premier League star, with us. And just to finish on the World Cup semi-finals, and then cast our eyes ahead to the final between Argentina and France, the French have shown that they do have such a rich depth of world-class players. Tommy Orr, quite simply, what do you put it down to? <sighs> yeah, that's a difficult one. I mean, um, yeah, I think they've always had um, the the a lot of great players, and it's obviously not necessarily the best league in the world. But you look at um, the, the number of French players playing for the top clubs, they've got, you know, every top club seems to have three or four players that are uh, eligible for the French national team. And how they've managed to get to that point is difficult to say, but obviously, um, you know, in, in France and, and the way that their academies are structured and obviously as well, they, they, you were talking about um, people with dual nationalities and they've obviously have a lot of French African players as well. And they've managed to kind of, um, yeah, c- c- squeeze everything out and, and create this really competitive environment in, in youth football in France. And I think that now, you know, the, the the third or the fourth choice French national team would probably still be in the top 10 or 20 in the world. And the depth that they've created is phenomenal. And how they've managed to do it, I'm not exactly sure. But, I mean, hats off to them because it's... Claire they're, they're Fontaine, Tommy, I can tell you. Claire Fontaine is up there. <laughs> the academy for the national yeah. team. Yeah, well, I mean, we used to have something similar in Australia, maybe with the AIS, but um, now that's obviously not there anymore. But uh, yeah, I mean, of course, that that's part of it. But you also see players like Kante, who who didn't go through a system like that, and who was a late bloomer. And, you know, they, they've obviously got a system in place where, um, you know, if a player does fall between the cracks or however you want to put it, that there's other opportunities for them down the line to, to end up making it. And I think that's the, the, the big thing that they've done well is there's, there's so much opportunity for, for the talent to shine. Oh, you touched on it there, Tommy, uh, the AIS. It tends to come up in many a debate about the game in Australia. Do you think it's time to put it back on the national agenda? I know that at this World Cup, Graham Arnold has uh, certainly referred to infrastructure in the company in the country. Is that the infrastructure that we need to see, a return of the AIS? For me, no, but no or not the AIS as we had it historically. I think that um, now with, with you look at the, the A-League academies and, and you know the work that's going on in that space, and obviously resources has been the biggest issue so far, but you can see with time more and more energy is being put into, into kind of developing the A-League academies. I think that's a good blueprint. For, for Australia, um, you know the, the the you see you saw in Australia's World Cup squad at this World Cup some of the players that have been products like Kai Rolls and these types of players of the A League academies, and I think that um, with time and with more kind of investment in that space, um, instead of having one Australian Institute of Sport based in Canberra, you can almost see it as having twelve around you know for each A League club around Australia, and I think that's kind of got to be the blueprint. I think that. There was a bit of a, a transition period, obviously, when the AIS closed and there was no opportunities for players um, in that kind of 13 to 15-year-old age group to, to play football. And if I look at me when I was 13 or 14, in terms of formalised training, like I was obviously kicking a ball every day, but I, I didn't. I probably was only training three days a week. And so if you compare that with how much, you know, the, the, what those players are, are getting at Clairefontaine in France, for example, it's, it's a different world completely. So I think that making the academies in the A-League much more professional and much more hands-on, not only in terms of the quality of the coaching, but 
the amount of training and the amount of games that they play because at that age, you know, it, it's all about rep- repetition and um, getting as much experience as you can. So I think that that's definitely been a gap, but I think that the the clubs have rectified that over the last few years and hopefully we can see more investment in that space. Bridgie, when you mentioned Clairefontaine, are you, are you mentioning the physical space, you know, the facility itself, like, say, you know, St George's Park in England? Are you talking about the contact hours, you know, people living on site? It's an academy where they, they live and study and work. Are you talking about the coaches? What is it that Australia needs if Clairefontaine is the reason France is so good? I agree with Tommy. I think if you're going to go for a segregated again, like an AIS where people are living there and you're going coaching and then you're studying there, that's going to take years to get going again and to get that kind of pedigree coming. It's not just going to happen all overnight where the players all of a sudden you've got the ace again. Oh, we've got international footballers. That that's though is it's a long process and you know Claire Fontaine have have done that. Uh, you know, England had one with Lillishall that went. You know, it, it was successful for so many years, but they got rid of it because these academies at club level became so much better and more powerful because of the money um, side of it. We don't have that luxury in Australia to with the with the financial side of it or the the amount of facilities that can be can be done. So, like I think the Clairefontaine, it's been there, it's established, it's got a process. But what it is, you've nailed it. You've got to have the right coaches in there, coaching and mentoring these players to become better players and better people, um, and get the education right. If if you if you empl- it's any business, it's not just sport. It's not just if you employ people at the top that are not the best in their industry. Then you've got you've got failure. It stems from the top in any business, in any football environment, any sports code. If you have got the best talented footballers in the world, and you are given the bad mentor or bad coach, you are not going to develop. You're not going to get players coming through. If you get the best people in place to get the right principles across and the dynamics and structure it correct, you've got every chance of success on the field, off the field, and in business. And it's the same all around the world. You've got to. It's yeah. It, so for me. The the academies at the football clubs, like Tommy said, we're they're trying to do it in the best possible way that they can. But you've got to have the coaches in there that are going to get the best out of the players, and they've got to be paid their worth for their time. I've, I know a lot of coaches that have gone for youth team jobs in Australia, and the money that is an offer for the amount of time and effort and work that you've got to you put in, not that you've got to put in, that you want to put in. It's 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 peanuts, and they, they they can't afford to do it. They've got to get other jobs to sustain that. It's so there's there's got to be a fundamental change there, as well. If you want to employ the best coaches, hey Bridgie, you might remember this because uh, I, I do think it crosses over with your time here, Tommy. You may recall it too. In 2013, Romeo Jozak, the Croatian coach who was at the time the head of the Dinamo Zagreb Academy and then went on to become the TD of Croatia from 2013 to 17. Hmm, what happened to Croatia in the two World Cups after that period, I wonder? But um, he came out here to Australia sort of on a fact-finding mission. And when you talk about the right people, Bridgie, rather than headhunting the next Socceroos coach, is it actually headhunting the next Romeo Jozak? And that's the sort of person that we need to be targeting to head up, say, whatever Australia's Clairefontaine may be. Without a shadow of a doubt, you, you can't have your blinkers on and say it's a certain mould or a certain thing. You know, I, th- I think a lot of the ASS, I, I don't want to go on about it, but when it came in, I think the AIS fell through when they went for the Dutch curriculum. And then obviously when it went over to, and it was handed over to the FA, obviously with the funding issue and things like that, it, I think the best the best time in the AS um, was about the, the night in the 90s. Am I correct? The, the best potential of lads came through from there um, in, in that era. 
uh, and they kind of went in a different direction and that is wrong. So you, it, it's like you've just said there, it doesn't matter where the coaches are from, everybody's got different ideas about football. If you're a good person and you've got the right values and the right morals and you know that you can coach and you understand the game of football and you can get that message across to the players to, be, to make them become better people, better players, and they've got to enjoy it. It, they cannot be brainwashed and become boring because then you fall out of the love of the game. So there's a, there's a lot of things and it comes down to, at the end of the day, I'll never forget the coaches that I played under at youth team level for certain clubs. The ones you remember were the amazing guys that let you get on with it, but they give you values on and off the field. And they, they always, the, the ones that, the first people that you will ring to say, thank you very much when I made my debut, when I got my first goal and you stay in contact with them people. There's other coaches at them levels where you look back and you think, my God, how were they in football? Let's get Mark Schwartz's thoughts on this as well. It would be remiss of us not to. Mark Schwartzer, coming off the long run, thoughts on Australian player development. Look, the French national team and the setup of Claire Fontaine is something that obviously um, has been done over a long, long period of time. And football is the number one sport in France and has the financial support, has governmental support. Um, and it certainly <clears throat> makes that element of it more, uh, I think, certainly easier. Uh, gives them far more opportunities. We are fighting a battle in Australia, first and foremost, against other codes. We're fighting a battle against um, against uh, institutions that are totally against football but support uh, a lot of other codes and have vested interests. From a government level, we we are underfunded. Um, <clears throat> we don't get the same treatment as any, any of the other sports, um, certainly the bigger codes, even though we are the most participated sport in the country. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a battle. But absolutely, I think to build a headquarters, first and foremost, a football headquarters is, is vitally important. We don't even have one. Um, Matildas are going to have one in, in, in Melbourne. Um, <clears throat> the Socceroos don't have one. And it's been talked about for many, many, many years, but nothing's ever been forthcoming. And it's something that certainly would be, I think the beginning of creating something very, very special and a and a base and, and an identity of the Socceroos um, and that, all our national teams. I'm not just saying it should be just Socceroos. I think it should be for all our national teams to be involved and to have a permanent residency. Um, so I'd love to see it. And certainly the, the spin-off to that is having <coughs> academies. I think first and foremost, A-League clubs have a responsibility to to develop players, not only for themselves but also for the national team because if they they develop good players for them they develop in turn also potentially new Socceroos players future Socceroos players um, but you know don't get me started on funding because some of the A-League clubs actually charge players to be invited or selected to play in their academy which I am totally against and I think it's actually shouldn't be allowed from an A-League club to do so um, so there's a lot of things that need to be addressed before we can get to a level of, say, like a France or, or, or some of the massive hitters. I mean, look, France are <clears throat> on the verge of potentially winning their second World Cup in a row. Um, we're a million miles away from that. But we can still think big and dream big, and we need to get everyone on side and everyone on board, and we need to make changes and need to demand change as quickly as possible. Yes, indeed. Thank you to Mark Schwarzer. All right, now... We've got two games to go in the World Cup, but fellas, I'm not going to press you for a tip on the third place playoff. Let's just go straight to the final. How will, Tommy, the World Cup play out on Monday morning? Who's going to win the World Cup and why? I think Argentina's going to win. Um, 
I'm I, I backed them from the start, so I'm not going to change my mind now. It's the final. Um, I think it's going to be a really interesting game, but I do think um, that you know Messi and the, and the Argentina's front third will be too much for France to deal with, and I think Argentina's defense does make me a little bit nervous about you know guessing that result because I think that they will be a little bit vulnerable, but I, I do think that um, you know second time second final round, I think Messi will get the job done and have a, um, you know, make his own legacy in that regard. So I'm backing them to do the job. Tommy, you're backing them in 90 minutes, extra time or penalties? Whew, it's a tough one. I, I think I can actually see this going to extra time or penalties because I think it's going to be so tight, this game. There's almost nothing between them. So I think I would like to think extra time because I don't like penalties in a World Cup final, but penalties also wouldn't surprise me. Interesting. Interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you here because I want the fairy tale ending for Messi. I, I I would love this to be. It's been his tournament. He's gonna it, hopefully he'll get a goal. Is it him and Mbappe are, are level on five? Am I correct there or am I wrong? Correct. Yes. Yes. Five, five each. I'd love to see Messi get the goal. Even though I went for Mbappe to be the top scorer in our predictors, but I'm gonna I'm gonna swallow humble pie. Messi to get a goal. Messi to lift the World Cup. Messi to get Player of the Tournament. And Messi to say, "There you go. I am the greatest player of all time. I am the goat. See you later." And just absolutely lift the World Cup above his head, and then do a mic drop and just say, "Enough's enough, lads. I rest my case." <laughs> That's what I want to see happen. And Tommy, I don't even need to ask you because you have held firm with Messi to win both the Golden Boot and the Golden Ball yeah. all the way. Did you predict that? Beginning. Did you? I did. But... Yeah, that's why you get paid the big bucks, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing I've got right this whole tournament, to be fair, potentially. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, whatever happens, I think that for me, um, he, he's still probably a very good chance to win player of the tournament. Um, but yeah. It would be fantastic. I think a fitting way for him to end his international career is to go out the way Bridgie just mentioned with, you know, with all the personal and team accolades that he could win in the tournament to to win them all. That would be amazing. And if he does, where does he rate for you? For me, he regardless of what happens, he's the best of all time. Well, <laughs> one last question before I wish you a good day. Bridgie, where are you watching the final? Uh, where am I watching the final? I'm actually, listen, I've got my Christmas jumper on here tonight because we've had our, our local pub in England. We've had our Christmas um, pub quiz. So I was watching the semi-final in there with family and friends. We will be doing exactly the same. It's on a Sunday evening, so I will have just filled my big belly full of Sunday roast English dinner, followed by the World Cup final with a few pints with the family and um, just looking forward to seeing Messi lift the trophy, lift the World Cup. And... Tommy, it's a 2 a.m. kickoff here in Australia, so you're going to be rolling over in bed and watching it on your phone with one eye open, or do you have something special planned for the World Cup final? No, I think I'll be I'll be on the Gold Coast, um, ready for the Christmas holidays. You still be out. I'll, I'll be. Yeah, I don't know about that, but um, no, I'll be watching it probably with my family and friends, and maybe having a few beers as well, like Bridgie. So, um, really looking forward to it. Yes, a big thank you to Michael Bridges, Tommy Orr, and also Mark Schwarzer, our man on the ground over in Qatar. Don't forget, the Gagan Pod still has the World Cup final edition to come, and then we get back into the Premier League, La Liga, and all the football that you get live and exclusive on Optus Sports. So make sure you hit subscribe and rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. If the World Cup is not enough of a football fix for you, the WSL continues live and exclusive on Optus Sport as well. 
I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Thank you for your company today on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This was the Pod. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.